St. James. It's good to see you guys, and uh, welcome to everybody who's um, uh, watching online. I'm glad that you're here with us as well. Uh, run over the notices real quick if we can. Everything's on for this week. Um, Bible study today at 1230, youth confirmation at 1130, uh, evening prayer tonight at 530, uh, youth groups on at Tuesday night, um, men's Bible study next Tuesday morning is going to be happening. If you want to participate in that, could you get a hold of Cheryl sometime early this week? That's a Tuesday morning Bible study at 6.30, so call the office and let Cheryl know sometime this week if you're interested in participating in that. Women's Bible study Saturday morning. Uh, also, a yoga class with uh, Megan Ranbarger begins this week at 7 o'clock. Uh, just show up here. I don't think you need to get in touch with her, but if you have any questions, you can. Her phone number is there. Uh, so, uh, uh, good news from... Uh, uh, the CDC this week about um, masks and social distancing and all that. The elders are meeting tomorrow night, and we're going to talk about it. And of course, like I said last week, we're going to send you guys out a survey to find out how everybody here is feeling and thinking about that. But it looks good. It looks like we'll be um, changing things up soon, getting back to more normal, like having a Bible study hour here during the day instead of just online. Uh, hopefully, maybe having a service with masks optional, at least uh, one service with masks optional. So um, it looks good, but just hang on and uh, do the survey whenever you get the survey. I'll, as soon as we got it ready, I'll email it out to you. And um, looks like we'll be doing having some good changes here pretty soon. I think that's all I have for notices. Go ahead and stand with me, and we will continue worshiping. <clears throat> Let's pray, though, this morning. Uh, God, we want to be certain. We want to know that you are real and that you are for us. And um, we need to hear your word this morning. And I'm not just talking about hearing uh, your uh, Bible preached, although that is, of course, essential. But in the preaching of your word, we, in the teaching of your word, in the reading of your word, we need to hear your voice convincing us that we are your children. And that's something that only you can do. And so this morning, we, we pray that you will descend and by the power of your Holy Spirit, convince us that Jesus is our brother and that we are your children. And do this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, whom we behold in awe and wonder, who has kept covenant and steadfast love with your people from age to age. We have sinned and done wrong, enacted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have known in our hearts what is right, and yet we did wrong anyway. We have been fascinated by evil, delighted with pleasing ourselves, satisfying our desires, serving ourselves with pleasures. 
O Lord, great God, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. We know you are a God who delights in goodness. Grant that we too might delight in goodness. We know you are a God who rejoices in peace and justice. Grant that we might be at peace with ourselves and each other. O Lord, great God, grant that our hearts might be filled with the love of justice, with peace beyond understanding, with patience, with joy. These prayers we present to you, O Father, in the name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives forevermore. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Please remain standing for the first hymn. psalm this morning comes from Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, 
and will be forever. Amen. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You may be seated. So the Acts reading is uh, from Acts chapter 1. After Judas Iscariot has committed suicide and the disciples gather together to uh, choose a 12th disciple. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, uh, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you. So can I preach a real fast sermon about this text? I, you know, you can only preach on one of the texts. Just give me a chance to, uh, this is to be real short, I promise. Uh, so first of all, why do they need to pick another one? Well, the, the number 12 is super important to um, uh, to the earliest uh, Jesus community because they want to show an organic relationship with the 12 tribes of Israel, that they aren't doing something new, that actually what was planned beforehand in the Old Testament is being fulfilled by them. That number 12 is super important. The second one is, what's the deal with the casting lots? And the answer is, uh, because sometimes that's how you can tell what God's will is. Now, you wouldn't cast lots if the choice was between murdering somebody or not murdering somebody, you wouldn't cast lots to decide that. But sometimes you want to know what God wants you to do, and all the options are equally moral. They're equally not violating the Ten Commandments. So they do two things. One, they pray, and then they cast lots. Because sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Like God, God gives, you, gives us specific directions on how we should find his will. But if all things being equal, just do what you want. In, in their case, just cast lots. So it's not anything weird or hocus, but there's, no, there's nothing mystical here like they have magical dice that God's going to show them what to do. It's just they're trusting God, and between these two dudes, it doesn't matter. They're both equally good guys, and so we'll just cast lots and choose that way. Okay, Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 17. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. 
epistle reading this morning is from 1 John 5, and it's right after the text that we ended reading last week. And John says this, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this is the last. So we've been working our way sort of through 1 John. This is actually just the lectionary readings. And this is the last week that we're going to do this. Next week is Pentecost. The week after that's Holy Trinity. So it's kind of wrapping up here. And this is a good text to wrap up what John's, John's been trying to tell us because John is super concerned that we be convinced that we are the children of God. He wants to convince us of that. Um. Now, his, his issue is this. It's not, his issue is not, I want you to know because, well, how can I say this? He wants us to know because the heresy that he's battling is Gnosticism. And the particular version of Gnosticism says, Jesus is just kind of an illusion. Like, Jesus the man didn't ever really exist. It's, he was kind of a, almost an avatar, almost a hologram. Um, there was this Jesus man that did exist, but the Messiah kind of hung out on him for a little bit to give us secret knowledge so that you and I could have this secret experience and secret knowledge of the, the deep, intimate mysteries of God. That's what Jesus came for. Now, if that's the kind of Jesus that you believe in, John knows if you can't be convinced that Jesus is real, then you're never, ever going to be convinced that your faith is real. Like, how can your connection to God and Jesus Christ be like firmly ensconced in your mind if you're not even convinced that Jesus was a real thing. And so what he wants to do is he wants to say, first of all, Jesus is a real thing. Who, like last week, whoever believes that Jesus has come in the flesh has been born of God. But then I want you to be convinced that this is for you. This is real. This is for you. So this is going to be a summary of everything we've done the past month. It's kind of like a, he's throwing everything like in one little text here. There's four things he wants us to be convinced of. I'm going to give you some big words here. I halfway apologize for those. Um, just, I'll explain them as we go along, but the big words are this. First of all, he wants us to, to have theological conviction. He wants us to have, second of all, Christological hope. This is all from the text this morning. He wants us to have epistemological certainty, and then he wants us to have relational confidence. Theological conviction, Christological hope, epistemological certainty, and relational confidence. So first of all, theological conviction. He wants us to have theological conviction. He wants us to be convinced that God, that's the theological part, is right. His testimony in court is going to win the conviction, theological conviction. So look at uh, verses uh, 9 and 10 with me. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. Okay, so the key word here in these two verses is obviously testimony. It shows up five times in those two verses. It's courtroom language. Or John is very fond of this. Paul is too, right? Um, here's this courtroom scene. You're on trial. And now here is God, and God is giving evidence. God is a witness. God has testimony that he's submitting to the court. And now the question is, I mean, there's, there's other people submitting testimony against you. God is submitting testimony on your behalf. And now the question is, whose testimony is going to win the day? Whose testimony is going to get uh, the case decided? And the answer, of course, in verses 9 and 10, is that God's testimony is always the one that gets the case decided because God's testimony is the best. Typically, we listen to man's testimony. It's just the way courts of law work. It's the way you work when you're like, if you've got a question about, if I have a question about something that you know about that I don't know about, and I come to you and I say, hey, what's up with this? And you tell me, I usually listen to you. I just assume 
that if you have the knowledge that your testimony is true. That's the way it works. This is why he says at the beginning in, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, he's not saying don't receive the testimony of men. He said testimony of men. That's, that's how you decide things is that if you want to know how to, to do a, a little bit of DIY plumbing in your house, you jump on YouTube and you find somebody who's a plumber who's posted a video, and then you watch that. You're receiving the testimony of men. In this case, though, you're going to want to watch out for that because you got to understand that when it comes to your eternal destiny, when it comes to your relationship with God, the testimony of men, especially your own testimony in John, is not good. The testimony of God is greater. So do not trust the testimony of men. Uh, note bene, there is a way to read 1 John in a completely unhealthy, damning way. There's a way to read 1 John where you read it as a list of things that you need to be in order to be a Christian, as a test. Now, I've heard people preach this before. In fact, there's a famous pastor who uh, you can hear, he's on the radio here in St. Louis. He doesn't, he's not from St. Louis, he's from California. But in his in his writing on the letter of 1 John, he says, I'm going to just give this to you straight up. There's a, the way he talks about, there's 11 tests in 1 John that you need to take to decide, are you really a Christian or not? And if you can pass these 11 tests, you know that you're really a Christian. And the 11 tests are, do you enjoy fellowship with God in Christ? Are you sensitive to sin in your life? Do you obey the scriptures? Do you reject this evil world? Do you love Christ and eagerly await his return? Do you see a, de a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Do you love other Christians? Do you receive answers to your prayers? Do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Can you discern between spiritual truth and error? Have you suffered on account of your faith in Christ? This is a well-known evangelical preacher. The guy's a believer. If you're honest with yourself, like I can go through those 11 tests, and I actually, being honest, I don't meet those 11 tests. My own testimony against me is damning. If I'm hauled before the witness stand and somebody says to me, do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I can't honestly say, yes, I'm always experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if they say, well, I'm not talking about always, like just a little bit maybe, I'm going to say, I don't, like, first of all, I don't even know that. But second of all, are you trying to dumb it down for me? Is that what's going on here? That doesn't seem like that's going to be healthy for either one of us. Your own testimony is going to be against you. In fact, this whole text that we're looking at here mirrors a text that we looked at three weeks ago. Do you remember this? Your testimony against yourself is damning, but God's testimony is greater. Okay, so you are, actually, let me just read it if I can. This is, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, it's 1 John 3, verse 19. By this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and persuade our heart before him. Do you want to know that you are of the truth? Do not go to these 11 tests. Why? Because verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, again, courtroom language, your own heart condemns you. You realize that, right? This is, I'm repeating something I said in the sermon a month ago. Like you're on trial and you look over and the witness who's testifying against you is actually your own heart damning you. When that happens, don't look at the 11 test. You've got to ask yourself the question, whose witness is greater? The witness of myself, which is always against me, or God's witness, which is always for me? Beloved, if our heart, I'm sorry, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Whenever you're, you read 1 John, and if you tell yourself, I don't know if I match up all, with all these tests, tell yourself this, God is greater than your heart, you don't need to pass those tests in order to be right with God because God says, you are my children. It's all about his grace, not about your ability to keep tests. God's witness is the most powerful one. The difference between believers and unbelievers, verse 10, is that believers have this testimony in themselves. Verse 10, uh, of verse 10 whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. It doesn't mean, what does that mean, has the testimony in himself? It just means that you've internalized it. Like, you, you know. Do you know... Do you know that God says about you, in Jesus Christ, you belong to me? God says that about you. If you know that, it's because you're a believer. You have internalized this testimony. That's the one thing that separates us, separates believers from unbelievers, is that unbelievers have not internalized the testimony that God is 
God is the God who has become flesh in order to rescue us. Believers have. It's, it's nothing more, nothing less than that. Don't ask yourself the question, have I internalized it enough? That's not the point. The point is, uh, from, from last week, right? If there's, there's a branch, you're falling off the cliff and there's a branch. You don't ponder whether or not that branch is strong enough to hold you. You don't ponder like, I wonder how deep the roots are. You just instinctively grab out for it. What, ha- what are you instinctively grabbing out for in your life? I'm not asking you like how strong your faith is or how much you love the brothers or do you have a deep sense of your sin or do you see, do you see a decreasing pattern of sinfulness in your life? I'm saying like when, when at the end of the day, like what's your hope? Like what's your one shot at being right with God? And if the answer is it's Jesus or nothing, then you're on the end. You're on the end. Because this is not just about your sense of security and assurance. This is about God's character. God is determined to rescue his own character. That's the last line of verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If you say to yourself, if you say, God, you say that I'm right with you, I don't believe you, then you're calling God a liar. And this is, you always want to be gentle, like when I, when I counsel people who are struggling with assurance of their faith. I always want to be super gentle because usually those types of people are very, very sensitive souls. But at the end of the day, you have to say, look, God says you're a child of his. Are you going to believe him or not? If you don't, you're questioning his character of truthfulness. Jesus died for you. That's concrete. That's bottom line. Theological conviction. Okay, moving on to the next one. Christological hope. Look at verse 11. Um, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus wants you to know, John wants you to know here, that the source of life is Jesus Christ. God is the only one who gives life, and that life always comes through Jesus Christ. Let me quote you some verses from the Gospel of John. Uh, John 1, 4, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all people. John 5, 26, Jesus says, for just as the Father has life in himself. Like God has, God has life in himself. Like God has life because he, it, he's keeping himself alive, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to say. But like, God maintains his own existence. God has given that to Jesus, just as the Father has life in himself. So he has also granted the, life, the Son, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus maintains his own existence. I do not maintain my own existence. Like, my heart is beating right now, hopefully, fingers crossed, and it has nothing to do with my, like, making it happen. You know, my, my, my brain waves are firing. It has nothing to do with my decision to, like, have an active brain. God is keeping all that going. Only God has life in himself. God gives that power to his son, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus has life in himself. And now, he gives that to us. Verse 14, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, verse 2, Jesus is praying and he says, you have, Father, you've given me authority over all people to give eternal life to all, whom you, all, you have given, all you have given me, he says. Jesus has life in himself and he gives that to people who trust in him. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have Jesus, you have this life. You will never die. You have resurrection power. You're indestructible. All right. Three things that I want to point out just real quick. This will be super fast from verse 13. One is this, uh, uh, verses 11 and 12, I'm sorry. Unbelievers don't have this life in themselves. Verse 12b, I mean, this feels super exclusive to me to say this. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. But this is what John is saying. This is the message of the Bible, is that uh, people who do not have this connection to the God of life, people who do not, do not have this connection to Jesus, don't have perpetual life in themselves. They have, instead, like Ephesians 2 says, they have death. But, I mean, they're, they're alive too, right? We're alive and they're alive. What's going on there? Jesus is keeping people alive because he's merciful, because he wants them to turn to him. You, though, in Jesus Christ, have life in yourself bubbling up. That's the first thing. Second thing is that it's eternal life. Look at verse 11 again. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. Literally, in Greek, the life of the age, the life of the age to come, the new creation life, the life that God is making at the end of time when he makes all things new. He's taken that life out of there and he's given that to us now. That's the third thing, is that you, you and I who know Jesus are experiencing eternal life now. 
This is the testimony, check out the verb tense here, that God, past tense, gave us eternal life. When you were converted, God pulled the new creation life out of the future and plugged it into you so that right now you are living, like 2 Corinthians 5 says, you and I are new creation. What does that mean? It means that we're a colony of new creation life now. That Christians of all people should be living lives of love and justice. Is there going to be, is there going to be racism in the new creation? No. So Christians should be living that life now. Will there be infinite love in the new creation? Yes. Christians should be living that life now. Will there be a complete obedience to God's law in the new creation? Yes. Christians should be living that life now. Not because living that life somehow earns us favor with God. Not because somehow like you have to do that in order to be a good Christian, but because we are the colonist of the new creation. We are living as a little tiny bubble of new creation here in Glen Carbon that's hopefully spreading and spreading and spreading so that the new creation love and justice and hope and peace and relationship with God and worship will keep on growing and growing and bringing more and more people into it because we are the people who are experiencing hope in Jesus Christ because we're experiencing it now. The new creation hope is being experienced now. So theological conviction, Christological hope. Verse 13, epistemological certainty. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the goal. John talks about this over and over. John wants you to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to have certainty. Okay, the word epistemology is a fancy word that means the philosophical study of how you can know things. Some of you struggle with whether or not you're really Christians. This is one of the reasons why we're doing 1 John is because not, not, not all of you, I know this, but there's a, 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 a healthy chunk of us who have like come and talked to me and said, like, I really don't know if I'm a Christian or not. How can I know? John wants you to know. For those of you who do struggle with it, frequently your problem, is it theological conviction? Do you need to be told God is true? And when God says to you, I sent my son to die for you. He's telling the truth. Do you need Christological hope? Do you need to know that the life that you have is the new life of Jesus Christ? Yes. Partly, though, your issue is that you have a bad definition of knowledge. Like, I want to know, you say. And when I say, well, what are you looking for? You say something along the lines of, like, I want proof. Like, how do I know? And so... I know I do this example in here a lot. I'm going to keep on doing this example over and over because I think it's super important, and I'll tell you why. It's because this notion of like, this is an enlightenment. This is uh, the past 300 years in the West is the only people in the world who've actually believed this. Everybody else in the world throughout human history would never talk like this, but we talk like this, and it goes like this. Knowledge is provability. Like you can't know something unless it's proven to you. And so, can you know that God exists? If you, say, if you say to somebody, I know that God exists, an unbeliever might say to you, well, can you prove it? What are they saying? You can't know something unless you prove it. But that's not the way people in the Bible think. It's not the way people in the rest of the world think, Christians and non-Christians alike. Knowledge is not provability. All the best things in life that you can know can't be proven. I know you can like prove basic math concepts and stuff like that, and that's certainly helpful to an extent. But really, is that going to make your life better that you know basic math? All the best things that you know are experienced, that's how you know them, is through experience, not through some sort of rational proof. I, again, I do this illustration a lot. Like, I know my mom loves me, right? How do I know my mom loves me? Because she proved it to me? No, like, any evidence that I could give you of her love for me, you could say, okay, maybe, but also it could just be something else. It could be, you know, that she took care of you when you were little, but it could be because she just knows that's the way, what moms are supposed to do, and she doesn't want to look bad in front of the neighbors. It could be that. Now, I will say no. I've actually lived in this for my whole life. I know that my mom loves me. I can't prove it to you, but I've experienced it. And I actually know that my mom loves me more than I know that the Dodgers won the World Series last year. First of all, it's not that important to me that the Dodgers won or lost the World Series. I know, like, my, my mom's love for me has never, ever been in the newspaper. And the Dodgers winning the World Series was. Is that going to be our definition of no, that it gets in the newspaper or that somebody wrote it down? 
I don't think that there's lots of things in the newspaper that aren't necessarily true. I know for a fact, though, that my mom loves me because I've experienced it. Now, here's the issue. If I say to my mom, I want you to prove it to me first. Prove that you love me, and once you prove it to me, then I'm willing to buy in. I will never, ever experience her love for me because her love for me is not the kind of thing that can be proven. And that's the struggle with some of us when it comes to God and our relationship with God and experience the assurance of knowing that we belong to Jesus is that we say to God, we're like, I mean, we're just good white people, right? We say to God like the good Westerners that we are. We say, I want you to prove it to me first. Prove that you exist, and then I'm in. Then I'll believe in you. And that's not the way knowledge ever works. You trust it first, and then you come to know it. Look, that's why in verse 13, he starts off with belief, and then he goes to know. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you result, that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe first. That's what Augustine said, right? Faith seeking understanding. The only way you come to know something is to believe in it, to buy into it, to test it out, to experience it. And once you've experienced it, you can say, I know it. And when, when we struggle with our faith, it's because one of the reasons as good Westerners is that we want proof first and then we'll believe it. And it doesn't work like that. You believe first and then you know it. Epistemological certainty. You want it, faith is the only way to have it. To buy into this relationship, which brings us to the fourth thing. Relational confidence, verses 14 and 15. All of, this is, all of this is happening so that John can lead up to this point here. This is the confidence that we have toward him, this relational confidence, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Did you check that out? Whatever you ask of God, these verses are saying, you get that. You ask God for something, he gives it to you. You have this confidence that you know God because you believe in him. Whatever you ask, he gives it to you. That's what this says. Now, I know it, now it's, it's my job as a good evangelical preacher to start qualifying this and say, he, the Bible here says, John says that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. And now let me tell you the five reasons why that's not always the case. Sometimes you ask God stuff and he just doesn't give it to you. Sometimes you, you ask God for stuff and it's not in his will, and so he doesn't give it to you. Sometimes, sometimes you ask God for things and he answers you, but he just says no. And I'm just gonna say, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do that this morning. I wanna tell you that whatever you ask for God, he gives to you. Now, it says here, whatever you ask according to his will. This does not mean, by the way, here in verse 14, it does not mean you have to figure out what God's will is and then ask for it, and then he'll give it to you. What it means is you ask it according to his will, much like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? A part of your prayer life should be, not my will, but yours be done. This is a part of theological conviction. Trusting him that he is the sovereign God who loves you. And so whatever you want, God, give that to me. Not my will, but yours be done. But if that's your prayer, and if you're a believer, that's going to be your prayer, you can count on this, that whatever you ask, whatever you ask, God will give it to you. Now, I, I know that like, people are like, well, I've, I've prayed for lots of stuff and I didn't specifically get that. Let me tell you what's going on here. And if, you can, can we, if we can, can we go back to the, the parent-child scenario again? A part of this is the faith that comes from being related to God as your father, like just trusting your father that he knows what's best for you. Okay, my son asked me uh, for some money so he can get some Annie's frozen custard. Why does he want the frozen custard? It tastes good. He wants pleasure, right? So he's like, can I have some frozen custard? Now, what's my thought as his parent? My thought is, okay, so he wants the frozen custard because he wants to have the, the pleasure of eating frozen custard. I have to decide in that moment, like, do I want him to have the pleasure of eating the frozen custard right now? Or do I want him that, to have the pleasure of having a healthy body? Of when he gets to be my age, he's not obese and he's flexible and he can still play basketball or whatever. I have to, and it's not, it's not either or, you know. I mean, it's like it's good to eat frozen custard and it's good to have good health. I, I want him to have the pleasure of both. And as his father who, who loves him, I'm not going, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not ever going to say, 
no, you can't have frozen custard in my mind think, because I don't like you, you little punk. I don't want you to be happy. So what I'm always saying is like, okay, what's, what is going to give him the most amount of pleasure? Sometimes it's going to be, no, you've had too much sugar today. I don't want you to get into the habit that I got into when I was your age of eating way too much junk. Sometimes it's going to be, yes, it's going to make me super happy, Harry, to watch you eat frozen custard. My goal, though, is going to be his pleasure. Now, I have limitations. One is, I don't know where that dividing line for myself is even between how much frozen custard is an appropriate amount. Like, honestly, I I live on the wrong side of that line all the time. I also don't have an infinite amount of money. And so that's another part of the equation, too. But given my love for him, as fallen and broken as my love for him is, sometimes I would say no to him just to be vindictive because, you know, he's been kind of a punk today, right? So, so don't, don't smart mouth me all day, then come and ask for frozen custard because I'm going to say, no, why should I give you frozen custard? Well, that's vindictive. That's my, that's my bad. I also don't have an infinite amount of money just to buy frozen custard for all my kids whenever they want it. I also don't have the kind of omniscience that would allow me to know what's the best amount of frozen custard that he can have and still end up being healthy and being able to play basketball when he's in his 30s. God, though, has all those things. And what this text is saying is, is that when you ask him for frozen custard, what you're really asking for is pleasure, right? It's guaranteed that he is going to give you the pleasure. It might not be the frozen custard, but, but, but after all, you're not really asking for frozen custard. You're asking for pleasure. He's going to give you that. That's the kind of God he is. Here's, here's, here's uh, the flip side of it. There's this great line by Tim Keller, and he's actually he's paraphrasing Uh, something that uh, John Newton, the great Anglican pastor who wrote Amazing Grace said, and the line goes like this, whatever is happening to you right now is the exact, whatever you're going through in your life right now is the exact same thing you would pray for to happen if you knew what God knows. Somebody might be thinking like, wait a minute, like I'm not getting along with my kids, my health is horrible. This is what this means. Like if you knew what God knows, You would pray for whatever's happening in your life to be happening right now. You know why? Because God loves you so much, he guarantees I'm going to answer all your prayers. It might not actually look like the frozen custard that you're asking for. It might be the deeper longing in your heart that frozen custard is only a signpost towards. You might want, God, give me somebody. I want to be married. God, I I want a relationship with somebody. And he may give you that relationship. He may not give you that relationship. He may take away the relationship that you have, but he's going to give you what you're actually asking for. What you actually want is somebody to completely love and accept you and to completely be attracted to you. And whether that's in a best friend or in a spouse or in kids who love you into their adolescence, whatever that is, he's going to answer that. Or maybe it's just like just you and him. Just you and you have this sense that he is the only one in the world who infinitely is attracted to you and accepts you. He's going to answer that prayer. That's the bottom line. John wants you to know that whatever you ask him, he will give to you because he is the God who bears witness on your behalf in the court of law against your own heart who's testifying against you. Because he is the Jesus Christ who gives you eternal life, infinite hope, the eternal life of the age, even now in this life. Because he's given you epistemological certainty. In this relationship with him, you can come to know and experience what it means to be absolutely certain that I belong to God and that he loves me in Jesus Christ. He's the kind of God who will give you anything you ask for because he loves you that much. All right, stand with me and let's pray. Then we'll have uh, communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such an amazing God and for loving us. And thank you for testifying on our behalf even when we testify against ourselves Thanks for the new creation life which you've given us in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the certainty that you give us, knowing that we are your children as we experience you. And Father, when we begin to doubt this, when we feel ourselves a bit at sea from you, once again remind us, God, that you are our God and that we are your children, and that you are our Father who's uh, pulled us into your family. And uh, thank you for answering these prayers, Father, and as we bring them to you this morning, as we always pray to you, uh, help us to trust that you will answer them, that you will give us what we're asking for in ways that we can't even anticipate. 
with our shallow, uh, broken minds. Answer them according to your will. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we uh, praise and thank you uh, for our sister churches in the area, especially for our sister LCMS churches. We thank you for St. Paul Wood River this morning and Pastor Schultz there. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and the worship of you there. Father, we also uh, pray especially for all of the gospel preaching churches in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon, some of whom are only hundreds of yards away from us. Holy Spirit, will you be using the ministry of all of our churches to grow your great name, to establish your kingdom, to bring people into a saving relationship with you? Would you make, by the power of your gospel, lived out and preached by these churches, including ours, would you make Glen Carbon a fortress and a haven of justice and righteousness and love and mercy and compassion and self-sacrifice? Father, we need you to do this. Our churches together need you to accomplish this. We know that your kingdom is great. We know that the gates of hell will never prevail against your church. Father, we want to experience this here. Will you do this for your own glory and for our sake? Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with all the concerns and requests that people have, that all of us have on our hearts, that you would bless uh, our uh, health, our physical health and our mental health, that you would uh, take care of us materially and financially, especially, God, that you would give us relational wholeness and healing, that you would repair the relationships between uh, ourselves and those around us, repair the relationship even between ourselves and ourselves? Uh, would you uh, give us a psychological health and social health? Uh, we need you to perform, in your role as the great physician, Father, we need you to perform uh, this work. And when you do this, we will give you the praise and glory for it. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for all of our graduates who have uh, worked real hard the past four years in high school or in college or in grad school and uh, have devoted a lot of time and energy and families have devoted a lot of money to education. And I thank you, Father, for the place that you've brought them to today and this uh, uh, kind of wayside, wayside marker uh, uh, to point them forward in their whatever, their academic career, their vocational career or life um, a life experience, and that uh, you would continue blessing them with uh, the strength to do hard work, that you would continue blessing them, of course, with your sanctification, with love of you, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are our Father and that you have made us your children and your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we come into your throne room now, covered up with the blood of your Son, Jesus, as your daughters and as your sons. And we pray these uh, requests in his name. Amen. If you can, confess with me uh, the words of the Nicene Creed found in our bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around and find somebody you don't recognize or somebody you haven't talked to recently and start to build a relationship. Go in peace.